It's my intention today to conclude our series called Imitator, and I've entitled today's message, Discovering Likeness. Join me in our text, Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice of God or to God. Some translations use the word be followers. That's incomplete. It's insufficient. Because I am not a servant of God and I'm not just a follower. The word imitator used here is very intentional. And in the Greek language, it was never meant to refer to obedience, such as, I hear your command and now I'm going to obey. Rather, it's literally the word mirror. And literal Greek translations will show that and have mirror God as dear children. Mirror God as dear children. You see, everything you and I do is meant to be a reflection of God. Now, it's thought that actually the New Testament was originally written in Aramaic and then translated into Greek. And so the Aramaic uses an interesting word here for imitator, and it's the word likeness. Get that? Likeness God as dear children. Likeness God as dear children. Those of you that are parents have been in settings where people have said, when you're with your children, oh, your son looks so much like you, dad. And then they'll say, oh, you know, mommy looks like you too. <laughs> oh, but he looks more like mom. What are we saying? That we can see even on the surface. And then we can see in actions and facial expressions and gestures how that a child imitates or is in the very likeness of their parents. I submit to you, ours is not to pursue righteousness, but to uncover it. That's important. God isn't angry with anyone. God is not angry with anyone. Our job is to come alongside everyone and facilitate the work of the Holy Spirit in, in them uncovering their likeness of God. Are we telling people that? Is, is that our style of evangelism? Are we living that? We've got to understand this issue of likeness. 
If you've been an evangelical for some years, you know that the evangelical tradition in almost every church in America is a sort of penal system of judgment that finds God turning his back on man throughout history. Let me illustrate that. Pastor Rod, would you come up here? Rod is an average human. Now, it so happens that Rod also goes to church. Rod has heard the gospel. Rod has repented. And Rod has confessed Jesus as his Lord. I, as God, want to be sure Rod knows that he's accepted now that he has met the system requirements of penal judgment. I was angry. I wanted to smash him like a bug. My son Jesus interfered and said, no, 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 God, don't smash Rod like a bug. I'll go and die for Rod. Jesus did and then told Rod about it. He happened to hear through somebody witnessing to him. Rod said, well, I don't want to go to hell. Kind of the ultimate penal judgment of God upon man. So I think I'll go ahead and accept this fire insurance policy and I'll become a Christian. Thus, Rod, average human, average Christian, and God have started a relationship. Rod, I love you. You're precious to me. Give me the microphone. I love you, son. You're precious to me. Love you, God. Um, I need you to do some things for me. I want you to be holy. I want you to live righteously. And I want you to tell others about me. Are you good with that? Yep. Very I'm good. in. All right. Here we go. And ultimately, <laughs> that's what most Christians do, is they sit and they wonder. They really don't hear God much. God begins to express his love, but it's not really a two-way relational thing. And ultimately, something enters into Rod's life. It's called sin. Uh, so, yeah, I said the F word the other day. Wow. The F word. <laughs> you dropped an F bomb. You are unworthy indeed. Wow, the F bomb. Well, that's certainly going to require some repentance of you, Rod. Are uh, you still there? I am, Rod, but I need to see some repentance first. 
said nice stuff instead. Have you asked forgiveness for your F-bomb? Not yet. Have you been to church recently? You heard I said the F word, right? Yes. No, I haven't gone. They wouldn't let me stay there. Hmm. Have you been reading your Bible? It's been a while. Well, come back to me, and I'll forgive you. Where are you? Um, just come back. You're in my grace. I love you. I forgive you. Okay. And, of course, in our penal system and our penal judgment idea of God, God had, of course, moved away from Rod and now slowly makes his way back. Have you started reading your Bible yet? Working on it. Working on it. Mm. And uh, you remember I told you to sign up for that uh, commitment at the church. Did you do that yet? I did register on CCB. Does that count? <laughs> CCB, what is that? <laughs> <laughs> so you see what God is doing. I mean, we have this relationship, but it's tense. It's at best really not very relational. It's certainly not loving. Everything about it's based on law code, moral do's and don'ts, and Rod's behavior. And so, of course, some time goes on, and Rod sins again. <laughs> Okay, here we go again. Rod, I told you not to do that. I know. It's in my word that you should not do that, isn't it? Yep. And what happens when you do things over and over again? I don't know. That's why I keep doing it. <laughs> Good point. Are you sure you got born again when you said yes to Jesus? Pretty Be sure. Well, people don't act like this that are truly born again. Well, Rod, let's try it again. I forgive you. Thanks, God. You can come back. And God, being distant by choice, having walked away from Rod because Rod turned his back on God, eventually God makes his way back, and the fellowship time warms a little bit. God lets Rod know, I do love you. I know you're working on it. Thanks. Now, that's the system, according to evangelical Christianity, that most of us have been taught and live under. Let me show you now the New Testament system that Jesus and Paul taught called grace and likeness. So let's go back. Rod, go ahead and sin. <laughs> Let's go back to the F-bomb. Go ahead. I eked out another one. Wow. An F-bomb. You must feel pretty unworthy. Yeah. I'll see you next time. Rod. Yes.
Why'd you turn around? I don't know. I made a mistake. I hey. thought that's what I did. Lots of people have used the F-bomb. Did you know that the pastor of your church got mad at his wife and dropped the F-bomb? <laughs> Actually, I did. <laughs> no. <laughs> I didn't. No. <laughs> you know what? That F-bomb didn't change a thing about my love for you. I love you, and hey, I want you to know, the reason you dropped that F-bomb is because you're not quite sure of your likeness and identity in me yet, but we're working on that revelation. It's not that you need more of me, it's that I am working on just uncovering who you are. We're good. Brilliant. Get that chair turned around. Let's go. Rod, I need you to do something at the church. I want you to sign up for it, and they really could use your help on the ushering team. Okay. Two weeks later, uh, Rod, how's that going? Did you get signed up on the ushering team? I did sign up on CCP, but didn't do the ushering yet. Y you didn't do the ushering yet. Okay. Well, that must be Rod. Rod, hey, how's it going? Pretty good. Man, I love you. You look great today. Thanks. Uh, I saw you signed up on CCB. I did. Sometimes that system stinks, doesn't it? It's hard to navigate, isn't it? They have a great administrator, though. Not do, bad. Do they? Yeah, that Barb Cameron. Yeah, she's cream of the crop, isn't she? Yeah. You know what? I know how much you would love ushering, but you know, it might be that based on where you feel like you're at right now and your knowledge of me and where you're comfortable with your gifts and your talents, that you'd rather serve on the worship team. I wonder if you should approach, what's his name? Josiah. I'm in. Good. Turn around and go for it. Rod, this is a great relationship. I love you. Man, you're growing. You're a blessing. I just call heaven into you. I call heaven into your circumstances. I call heaven into your body. And I want you to know that regardless of what's been going on in your life recently, you're the bomb. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you, Rod. What I want to point out to you, you can leave them. Do you see the difference between the penal judgment where God dist always distances himself once you make a mistake and the one of likeness where he's not counting our trespasses against us, where even when you turn away from God, God's going to get in your face. God's going to be back talking to you, speaking to you, working with you, loving you, and here's the deed. You know, in Genesis, there was a lie told. Does anybody remember in Genesis, the first couple of chapters, how a lie was told? Satan came into the garden. What was that lie? Does anybody remember? The lie that was told by Satan to Eve was what? You will be like God. Do you know what the lie was in truth? She already was. Scripture said we are made in His likeness and in His very image. The moment Satan got Eve to begin to doubt her likeness, she fell. 
The lie wasn't that she would be like God. The lie was to get her to doubt that she was already in the image and likeness of God. You know that Satan used that exact same thing when he appeared to Jesus and tempted him. What did he say to Jesus? If you are the Son of God, then Satan is always trying to get us to doubt our likeness. Listen, dear ones, unbelief is not passive. It isn't not believing It's believing a lie. Let me say it again. Unbelief is not passive. Unbelief isn't not believing. It's believing the opposite of what God wants you to believe and who God has revealed Himself to be. Chris Miller said, we need to resurrect our view of Abba. I agree. He also said that the good news is a romance, not an ultimatum. Dear ones, the Father is wooing us. He's calling us. And I want you to think about likeness when you're out and you're sharing the gospel. When you're out sharing your testimony or you're witnessing, sharing with a neighbor or a friend or whoever, the good news that we are to proclaim is to make people aware of their present reality and condition in Christ as a result of His finished work. It's not to tell people that they're sinners. It's not to tell people that they're going to hell without Christ. It's to convince them and to help them uncover the fact that in Christ, their sins already paid for. In Christ, they are already in God's very image and likeness. What's the first thing that evangelicals typically tell somebody when they're witnessing or sharing their faith? You're dead in sin. You need Jesus. Well, now that's good news, isn't it? However, the reality of God's love and Christ's atonement is to introduce God as though He's already there. But in classical evangelicalism, we're always telling people, God's way away from you. And you need to change your behavior so that you can join my club And then you can come to church with me. The good news says that God has already claimed me as his own. And in Christ, I'm already his. I want to quote T.F. Torrance, who's a Scottish Protestant theologian, and I quote, God loves you so utterly and so completely that He has given Himself for you in Jesus Christ, His beloved Son, and has thereby pledged His very being as God for your salvation. In Jesus Christ, God 
has actualized his unconditional love for you in your human uh, nature in such a once-for-all way that he cannot go back upon it without undoing the incarnation and the cross and thereby denying himself. Jesus Christ died for you precisely because you are sinful and utterly unworthy of him and has thereby already made you his own before and apart from you ever believing in him. He has bound you to himself by his love in a way that he will never let you go. For even if you refuse him and damn yourself in hell, his love will never cease. Therefore, believe in Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, end quote. That's powerful. Folks, it's already done. Likeness was established. And I submit to you that what was lost in the garden was the very image and likeness of God. Be ye imitators of God. It's no wonder that Paul in chapter 5 of Ephesians says, look, guys, now that Christ came, was buried and rose again, you are the mirror. You are the mirror of God. We're back in the garden. We're back to what we lost. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's look together. Beginning in verse 14. A common passage. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him no longer. This idea of regarding somebody after the flesh simply means regarding them due to their behavior and their decisions. And we do this all the time. We regard people after the flesh. We look at how they think, we look at their decisions in life, we look at their behavior, and then we regard them. And we say, oh, you're not part of the kingdom. You're not a Christ follower. God doesn't accept you. You can't be part of my party. You can't join my camp. I regard you after the flesh. Paul said we're not to regard anybody after the flesh. Regard no man after the flesh. It's that process that is the very basis of the fundamental judgment aspect of evangelical Christianity. This is at the foundation of the we and they mentality of the church. This is the foundation of all attitudes towards the sinner that have made God the enemy of the sinner. That God somehow is mad at you because of your actions, your behaviors, and your decisions. And that anger that God has for you will never change until you repent of the things that you're doing and come to Him. In our example... You see that even when Rod sinned and turned his back on God, what did God do? God ran and got in front of him. 
I submit to you that the last time you blew it, the last time you did something foolish and you sinned and you did something that you knew was contrary to God's character and God's word, and you felt distant, you felt like God was over here, you know what? That wasn't God. Whatever that fear you had, that wasn't God because there is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. God is love. And perfect love casts out all fear. So your fear that somehow God is distant from you and has left you because of behavior or a decision you made is typical Christianity in America. And I'm here to tell you that is not New Testament grace. And that is not the new birth. And that is not why Jesus came and bore our sickness, bore our disease, and became the sacrificial lamb. He did that before the ages, before there was an earth. Christ died before the foundations of the earth so that long before you were ever born, you were already in the heart of God. Your salvation experience, you're shaking the preacher's hand, you're going forward in a service, you're responding to Billy Graham on television or in a great hall or conference was simply a point in time where the Holy Spirit was leading and orchestrating your life to where you, through that event, uncovered that Jesus was your righteousness. But it did not change the trajectory of your life in God's heart and mind. He's always seen you in His Son. He's always seen you as the righteousness of God in Christ. And no matter what decision you make, no matter how bad you blow it, God will always run and He will get in front of you. There is no more distance. By the way, this thing of that you must repent to receive Jesus, where'd you get that from? That's a very Old Testament concept. In the New Testament, the word repent simply means change your mind. You can change your mind about a lot of things. It does not mean change your behavior. Change your mind. Uncover what God has done for you. Uncover the identity that God's given you. Uncover it and receive Jesus as your Lord. And accept the great new birth that God has for you. Say, oh, now he's preaching heresy. I knew it was going to come out somewhere in this series. He'd say something that would just tip the scale. You mean I don't have to repent? Think of something. Greatest verse in the Bible, John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but shall have. And the very next verse, verse 17. For Christ came not to condemn the world. Why? Because the world was already in the love of God, redeemed and reconciled to God in His heart through what He had planned before the foundations of the earth. And so 
we don't repent as in you've got to repent, stop all the things you're doing that are contrary to God, fall on your knees, cry out to this judgmental God that would really rather just squash you like a bug if he could, but thank God for Jesus who interceded and jumped in the way of God's judgmental hammer and he saved you, aren't you glad? <laughs> that was never the plan of God. That's never been in the mind of God. That is an Old Testament concept of God. That is Judaism. That isn't even the Hebraic writings. That isn't what Abraham, the father of faith, operated under. It wasn't until the law. It wasn't until Moses and the law that that whole system of thinking of a penal, judgmental God came into view. No, repentance means to change your mind, not stop doing something bad. Listen to me. John never used the word repent in his gospel. Don't you think that of all the people, when you have John 3.16 written by John the Apostle, if repentance was essential to the gospel message, that surely John would have put something in his gospel about repentance? Not a single word. How about Paul? Did you know that Paul did not put repentance in the formula for salvation? What am I speaking of? Romans chapter 10, verse 9. That if you shall believe in your heart, God raised Jesus from the dead, and confess Jesus as your Lord, you will be. Where's the word repent? It's not there because it's not necessary, because it doesn't mean what you and I have always thought it meant. Yes, I understand that at the beginning of the New Testament church, in the book of Acts, in the message that Peter preached on that great day where the Spirit of God fell, that he told that myriad of people that were there, many and most of them Jewish and then from other nations, repent! Because that was the revelation of the Jewish disciples at that time before the Pauline message of grace. But as you work your way through the New Testament, that idea of repenting which came over from the Old Testament into that message Peter preached slowly just goes away because even Peter came in to the same revelation that Paul gave him and gave the church. It's not about changing your moral behavior. It's about accepting who you are in Jesus Christ. And that does not depend on your actions or your decisions. It's done. And we uncover it and we say, thank you, God. I believe you died for me. Jesus, you're my Lord. And with that great uncovering, we begin a path of uncovering all that God has made us to be. You see, the good news is the message of reconciliation, not stopping your immoral behavior, and joining our club. Let's keep reading. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Let's go back. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new... Let's go back. Read it aloud, everybody. Ready? Read. If anyone, 
Did you know that is not a condition, but a statement of likeness based on the previous verses? I've always read that as a condition. If I'm in Christ, I'm a new creature. If I've been to the church house, if I've gone forward in a service, if I've cried with genuine tears now, I really, really am sorry, and I pledge, I mean I really pledge, I'm going to stop doing those things that I know are against God. Now, I commit my life to Jesus. When's the next Bible class? <laughs> and so we start our Christian journey. So now that I'm in Christ, I'm a new creation, praise God. Do you really think that the eternal work of God planned before the foundations of the earth would rest on your behavior? If any man is in Christ is not a condition... It's a statement based on the previous three verses. Look at it again. How does he begin verse 17? What's the word? Look at it. Verse, verse 17, what's the first word? Therefore, whenever you find a therefore, find out why it's therefore. Therefore, because of the previous things I just said in verses 14, 15, and 16, when you are in Christ, this is the condition. What did he say in verses 14, 15, and 16? Let's go back. For the love of Christ controls us. What controls us? Behavior? The things that we do or don't do? No, the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all. How many did Christ die for? Just the people who join up? Just the people who stop what they're doing and become like we want them to become? No, he died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one after judgmental, condemning behavior, decisions. They're in our club. They're not in our club. Uh, you haven't done enough to please God. You have to wear your skirt a certain length. You have to do your hair a certain way. You have to read a certain amount of the scriptures. You have to come to church a number of times during the week. We regard no one after the flesh anymore. We don't even regard Christ that way. We get rid of that judgmental Christianity. Therefore, if we're in Christ, we are a new creation. And watch, verse 18. All this is from God. It doesn't depend on you. You don't have anything to do with this. This is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us that same ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the who? The who? The person you're living with? Did God reconcile them? Did God reconcile the Supreme Court? Mm. Has God reconciled the gay person? How about the lesbian? Has God reconciled them already? Are they the world? Quit separating you from the world. I mean, there's a time to do that in Scripture when God is talking about sanctification. I, I get that. But we're not talking about that now. We're, we're talking about 
the, the redemption, the incarnation of Christ. We're talking about the new birth. We're, we're talking about likeness. Quit putting them in the them club and us in the we club, and so it's we against they, and somehow we've got to get they and convince they that what they're doing is wrong, and they need to stop doing it, they need to repent, and so that we can get them to come over into our club and know God like we know God. Excuse me. Christ, God was in Christ reconciling who? Just those that come to your church? Just those that say the prayer? Come on now. God was in Christ doing what? Reconciling who? To himself. What's the next phrase? What's it say? If God is not counting people's trespasses against them, why are you keeping track? Dear ones, do you understand how much easier it makes to share the gospel with your friends when you get them out of the they club and you just include them in the same club you're in? Jesus died for all of us, and as far as God is concerned, all of us are reconciled to Him. It's done. It's not based on my behavior or my future decisions. God did it alone when he sent Christ to die for us. And now, the entire world is reconciled to him. And he's entrusted to us this great message of reconciliation, verse 19. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. You know, saving people from hell is not your job, it was his. Why do we begin evangelism always with, if you died tonight, where would you spend eternity? <laughs> what a stupid question, and I've asked it of so many people. If you died tonight, where would you spend eternity? Why do we begin our evangelism with fear? That's not God. There's no fear in God. So why would you begin your evangelism with a question of fear? How about beginning your question with, hey, do you realize how crazy God is about you? I mean, he's mad about you. Oh, but you don't understand it. I mean, if you knew the things that I do, you wouldn't be saying, listen, God knows everything that you do. And he's still crazy in love with you. Man, he just wants to bless you. How's your body? Do you have any pain? Well, as a matter of fact, this last week I twisted my ankle. Man, can I pray for you? Can I just pray for your ankle right now? Now, this person hasn't been to church yet. They haven't repented, and they haven't said the prayer. Jesus isn't Lord yet. You can't pray for their ankle. Really? In the mind and heart of God, he's already reconciled them to himself. As far as God's plan of salvation, he's not counting their trespasses against them. Why are you and I judging them after the flesh? We regard no man after the flesh, Paul said. We just don't even look at those things anymore. Every once in a while, I wish I was preaching to a bunch of Pentecostals. <laughs> Dave, you know what I mean, don't you, brother? <laughs> 
This gospel of reconciliation is not based on you are now in Christ as a result of things that you do. It's based on what God did, and He places you in Christ. You're accepted. You are loved. Christ's atonement placed you in the Father's sonship before the world began. So quit looking at people as reprobates and sinners. And Luke chapter 15, you know it. Can anybody tell me what that chapter deals with? The faster you tell me, the faster we can quit. Okay. What do we call that parable? It's a parable that Jesus gave us. We call it a certain word. The parable of the prodigal son. Thank you. Okay. In that parable, there were two sons, right? And whenever you hear the parable of the prodigal son, the emphasis is always on the prodigal son and what he did and he didn't do and he went out and he, he spent his, his father's uh, inheritance and riotous living and he left his father, picture of God and us leaving God and how that he came to himself, he came back, he found God again. And that's not what I want to emphasize. I want to pick up on the other brother for a minute. Nobody talks about the other brother really. But there's a tremendous message in how the other brother responded. Look with me. Luke chapter 15. We'll have the first two verses here on the screen, Jeff. Now the tax, tax collectors, and read it with me out loud, notorious and especially wicked sinners were all coming near to Jesus and listening to him. The who? The approved? The people we think it's okay? The people that are acceptable to us? Oh, notorious sinners. Who can you picture? What, what category of sinner falls into this place? Do you know what? Jesus loves them. All right, verse 2. And the Pharisees and the scribes kept muttering and indignantly complaining, saying, This man accepts and receives and welcomes preeminently wicked sinners, and he eats with them. I want a church just like that. I want to pastor a church just like that. Does anybody remember in the early days of Heritage, Heritage Christian Center over in Aurora? Brother um, Dennis Leonard. Does anybody remember the huge banner he had out on the side of his church facing the street? What did it say? Sinners welcome here. Mm, love that. Sinners welcome. Give me a church just like that. Fill it up, Lord, with people just like that. All right, so we get down to verse 27. Do you have that, Jeff? Show that to me. And he said to him, now, the older brother has come in. He finds that a party is being thrown for his younger brother who's come home. And he says, uh, or the, the, uh, the servant, one of the servants is telling the older brother who's inquiring, what, what is this noise? What's going on? Your brother has come. 
And your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. Next. But he was angry. This is the older brother now, the second one, the one who had stayed home. And he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you. These many, I mean, I signed up in CCB. I was at church early on Sunday morning, always. I mean, I think I've, always, I, I've only missed about two or three times in the last ten years. I used to sing in the choir, and I never disobeyed your command. God, I am righteous. I am holy. I've stood in your presence. I've worshipped. I've been on the worship team. I helped the pastor in with his coat, his bags. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. <laughs> Look what the father says. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Stop right there. What's he doing? He's knowing him after the flesh. He's judging him after the flesh because he's wrapped up in this evangelical judgmental system of that God's a penal God and he's going to judge you for the things that you do. And that's what he's steeped in. He's steeped in law code. So God, how can you bless him when you see his behavior? You see how he's rejected you and compared to me, compared to me, he doesn't deserve all of these blessings and favor and all the stuff I see you pouring out on him. He doesn't deserve it. I deserve it because I've lived the life. I've had the behavior. He doesn't deserve it because of his moral works. So I'm judging him after the flesh. And the father says, next verse, Jeff. And he said to him, son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. Even my likeness. Everything I have around here, you could have enjoyed. You wanted a fatted calf for a barbecue? You could have had ribs last week. Why didn't you go grab the calf? All that I have is yours. All that I am, my DNA, my likeness, you have it. But rather than enjoy my likeness, you'd rather live in the law code of your behavior and judge your brother based on his. I'm not even looking at the prostitutes and the sin and all the stuff that he was involved in. I'm just glad he's safe and he's back because now I'm uncovering his likeness and I'm giving him a new revelation of who he really is. And at that moment, the father removed distance and delay. He's immediately present. He's completely vanquished all distance and delay of his presence. And he sees you as holy and blameless and perfect and utterly acceptable in the beloved. I love how the father, when this young man is coming back home, before he can get a word out of his mouth of, quote, listen to me, repentance, the father is falling on his neck and kissing him. And by the way, it does, it's not this kind of little touch, you know, it, it, it's not this little... 
I mean, the, the, in the language of the Aramaic and Greek, he grabs him by the shoulders, and I mean, he's doing a lip lock. This, this thing is getting... This thing is getting serious. He is lip-locked with his son and welcoming him back and saying, no repentance. Don't run through all the women you've been with and all the prostitutes and how you spent your... I don't need to know that. Come here. Let me get a hold of you. And do you remember where this all started? In the book of Genesis. God made Adam out of the dust of the ground. And he stood him up, Eric. And he breathed into him the breath of life. And Adam became a living soul. God did a lip lock with Adam and breathed his very likeness, his very image into Adam. That's what happened when the prodigal returned. God's not interested in your list of behaviors. God's not interested in you justifying what you've done or not done. He wants to lip-lock with you and breathe His life into your very being so that you begin to know your identity and you know who you are in Jesus.